remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the death penalty. Death sentences have been handed down since the founding of the country, and they have always disproportionately affected the poor, people of color, and people without power. But there was a trend away from the death penalty in the 20th century, and even a brief moment when the court put a moratorium on its use. But as the composition of the court changed and moved to the right, a new crop of justices redefined cruel and unusual punishment to not include the death penalty. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have suffocated our rights like Michael is suffocating in his car. Mm. <laughs> I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon. Hey, we're just not going to, we're not going to explain it. No. <laughs> no I was going to. Uh, and live from his car. Yeah, that's right. Michael. Hey, everybody. I'm in my, my nice new car. Nice. My EV. Tell him about your new Rolls Royce. <laughs> <laughs> not in Rolls Royce. Podcast money Rolls Royce. At Subaru. <laughs> my new nice. Subaru. But, uh... Yeah, it's it's pretty nice. And my computer's actually plugged in. I'm running off the uh, the car. And it is a fully EV car, listeners. So Michael will not slowly die. He won't actually suffocate <laughs> over the course of this episode. Yeah. Zero yeah. emissions. Yeah. <laughs> emissions free. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm just picturing how grim it would be if like we didn't really think about it and then Michael just slowly passes out. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you guys are like frantically trying to remember my address. Right. Oh, Elena. Right. Like, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> Today, we are talking about the fall and rise of the death penalty. The death penalty, of course, a longstanding tradition in this country. Yeah. And perhaps no part of it more interesting than the brief period in the 1970s when the Supreme Court made it functionally illegal. From 1972 to 1976, there was a moratorium on death penalties across the nation. It was put in place by the court, and it was rescinded by the court. Yep. We're going to talk about the history of the death penalty, the moratorium, what happened after, and what we think it says about our criminal punishment system and the law in general. So, re take us on a journey, a journey through the history of the death penalty. Yeah, a journey of executions. Sad. Yeah, it's a long history, but I think we should just try to focus mostly on America, right? The U.S. history of the death penalty. So, European settlers brought the death penalty with them from Europe, and mm -hmm. all of the American colonies had the death penalty. In fact, the first recorded execution in the colonies was in 1608, when Captain George Kendall was executed in Jamestown for being a spy to Spain. 
And different crimes could be punished by execution, depending on what colony you were in. Mm. But the death penalty is absolutely used, and death as punishment for people who are enslaved is certainly widespread just before and around the time of the founding. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about this later, this meaning the death penalty for people who are enslaved, and then even after the Civil War, the use of race in the death penalty. But right now, maybe just some more historical benchmarks and events, the legal landscape, so to speak. So Britain had the death penalty for many, many crimes through the 1700s. The U.S. brought that over, too. Throughout the Enlightenment, many prominent European and then later early American thinkers began to dissent and express moral concerns about the death penalty. You know, like, does human morality liberty, progress, a quote-unquote civilized society, etc. Those all allow for the death penalty, right? So there is opposition to the death penalty in the United States. There has been since the United States was created. Thomas Jefferson, in fact, introduced a bill to revise Virginia's death penalty laws in 1779 so that the death penalty could only be used for murder and treason. That bill was defeated by just one vote. Sorry, I I don't I I just think it's I just think it's funny that what there's always like a carve out for treason in these situations. <laughs> like, come on, it, I don't know. It, treason to me is just so abstract. Yes, like everyone who was at January sixth and participated in storming the Capitol, you can make a reasonable case that they were participating. Right in a treasonous campaign, right? And I feel like if it happened in like 1805, they wouldn't have asked a ton of questions, right? They would they would have right. wrecked them up. Yep. Yeah. You offended my nation state. You die. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I it, it's not inherently funny. Um <laughs> it's just sort of bizarre to me that it's yeah. like being like killing another human being and being mean to the country are like in the same category to Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> right, exactly. But at the same time, back late 1770s, early 1780s, everyone does kind of assume that the death penalty would exist in the United States, right? I mean, it's even presumed in the Constitution once it's drafted, right? The Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause prohibits the taking of, quote, life, liberty, and property without due process, right? So there is the presumption there that the state can take away life. The death penalty was certainly legal at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1790s, Pennsylvania, Quakers, decided the death penalty shouldn't be available for all murders, which leads to the creation of like different degrees for murder in the law, right? First degree murder, second degree murder, depending on the legal seriousness of that offense, right? This caught on around the country. It also coincided with the birth of the use of the penitentiary in the early 1800s. A few states abolished the death penalty in the 19th century, but really throughout the 1800s, you saw most states holding on to the death penalty and some even expanding use of the death penalty, especially for, quote unquote, crimes committed by enslaved people. In the late 1830s, there's an important development in capital sentencing in the U.S., which is that states start to move away from mandatory capital punishment to discretionary use of the death penalty, right? Many states had mandatory capital punishment schemes, meaning that if you were found guilty of a capital crime, mandatorily you would be given the death penalty. States start to move away from that and say, even if you're found guilty of a capital crime, it is possible that you could be given the death penalty, but not mandatory. 
this really makes the death penalty incidence of the death penalty in society more palatable to people. In the early 1900s, there's some reform in the you know so-called progressive era of the United States. Some reform scattered among maybe 10 states to severely restrict or abolish the death penalty. But at the same time, you have intense class conflict, World War I starting, and the perceived threat of socialism as well as, of course, the continued subordination of formerly enslaved people and their descendants. You know, so that more or less reversed that trend by 1920. Should emphasize here that whether states were abolishing the legal death penalty or not, there were, of course, always extrajudicial lynchings of Black people happening across the U.S. and especially in the South. I think it's just important when you're talking about any history of the death penalty to think about the use of both legal and extra-legal capital punishment, right? Mm -hmm. So moving forward through the mid-1900s, eugenicists and criminologists throughout, like, say, the 1920s through the 1940s contributed to a resurgence in the use of the death penalty by saying that the death penalty was a necessary social measure, right? This is a necessary tool of social control. There are bad people, unworthy people. There are people with bad biologies that must be exterminated. Yeah. Got to kill them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Necessary. That's the only solution. But public sentiment kind of turns the other way after World War II and through the 1950s and 60s, the use of the death penalty drops dramatically. Uh, In fact, in a 1966 Gallup poll, support for the death penalty reached an all-time low Mm -hmm. with only 42 percent of the U.S. population saying they supported the death penalty. And not a coincidence in the mind of most academics that this follows World War II, right, where obviously you have this sort of Nazi regime and their use of, you know, quote unquote, capital punishment, if you can call it that mass execution and also be just the sort of broad exposure of the public to mass death in general. Right. right? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you have the emergence of the civil rights era and that is playing a role, too. But I think the sort of shift in our collective psychology following the war can't be ignored there. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So that's kind of a quick and dirty history. Let's talk about the death penalty at the Supreme Court. So historically, the Supreme Court hasn't really had much to say about the death penalty and was really like, by and large, leaving it up to states to decide what counted as cruel and unusual punishment, for instance. But since the 1960s, the Supreme Court has entered into death penalty politics. We'll talk in a little bit about why that was in terms of who brought these issues to the Supreme Court as part of a broader legal strategy. And there are a few different legal areas involving the death penalty where the Supreme Court has weighed in in the last 50 years. There's the Eighth Amendment question of whether or not a punishment is cruel and unusual, which has included decisions at the Supreme Court about different methods of execution. There are also legal questions about the quality of the defense attorney that is constitutionally required when you face the death penalty. That's generally a Sixth Amendment question. And then, you know, there are also general due process questions that come with the death penalty, questions about how jurors are selected for death penalty trials, what prosecutors can say and do in death penalty cases. It's cases like that. The first time that the death penalty came to the Supreme Court, but ultimately didn't actually, was in a case called Rudolph v. Alabama. 
This was a 1963 case that involved the rape of a white woman by a black man who was sentenced to death for the crime. The Supreme Court refused to hear the case, but Justice Goldberg wrote a dissent from the denial of cert, basically saying that he would have wanted to take the case because he wanted to declare the death penalty unconstitutional. In support of that dissent, Goldberg had had a law clerk write this massive memo to develop this legal argument. Do you guys know who this law clerk was? No. No. 1963, clerk for Goldberg. Massive foundational legal argument against the death penalty. This was Alan Dershowitz. (laughs) (laughs) An absolutely wretched, horrible, cretin, goblin monster of a man. But in 1963... That's incredible. It could be argued was doing maybe some good work. Yeah. So the memo that Dershowitz wrote for Justice Goldberg basically outlined this mass of legal arguments for why the death penalty was not just racially discriminatory in the U.S., but that it was cruel and unusual, that it was overly punitive, that the finality of this kind of punishment made it unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court ultimately did not take that case, did not decide to hear Rudolph v. Alabama. But there was some stirring as a result of Goldberg's dissent from that denial. The Washington Post called it, quote, an appeal to the brooding spirit of the law, to the intelligence of a future day. And Goldberg instructed Dirsch to disseminate the memo to a ton of legal organizations, including the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Now, the Legal Defense Fund decided to take up the cause against the death penalty. They decided to litigate the constitutionality of the death penalty and start bringing these cases to the Supreme Court. So they started challenging all kinds of death penalty statutes across the country and all of the various legal processes that states were using to sentence people to death. Because the 1960s was an era of what's called incorporation, when much of the Bill of Rights, including the Eighth Amendment, was said by the Supreme Court to apply against the states, in addition to the federal government, a ton of new legal claims were created, right? You could suddenly sue a state for violations of the Bill of Rights when before you weren't able to. So the LDF starts bringing cases about how juries are qualified to be on death penalty cases. They start challenging state laws where death penalty cases were not bifurcated, meaning the determination about guilty or not guilty, as well as sentencing someone to death, happened in the same legal proceeding rather than having a trial to decide on guilt or innocence. And then you have a sentencing trial to decide on what Mm -hmm, sentence. mm -hmm. They were also challenging state laws where there was no guidance for how a jury could decide not to give the death penalty, right? There's no instruction to the jury that they can consider mitigating circumstances. The LDF also funded and sort of organized studies on racism in the death penalty, for instance, in rape cases and other studies showing that a lack of guidance in state death penalty laws meant that only a tiny fraction of death-eligible crimes actually ended in death sentences, right? So uh, overall, they're creating not just a legal body of work, but also social sciences, social studies that show that the death penalty is cruel and unusual. It's also racially discriminatory. And that's all in service of a legal argument that this is 
unconstitutional, right? This is legally arbitrary and unconstitutional. So the first time the Supreme Court hears a case on the constitutionality of the death penalty is in a case called Witherspoon in 1968. In that case, which was brought by the LDF, the court held that throwing out potential jurors just because they expressed some reservation over the death penalty was unconstitutional under the Sixth Amendment. That's the right to an impartial jury. So the Supreme Court had stepped into death penalty jurisprudence by the late 1960s, but had not squarely necessarily taken on the constitutionality of the death penalty per se. Is that still good law? Yeah. Okay. But there's like other ticky-tack rules about death qualification. Mm-hmm. I've just heard so many stories about jurors getting kicked for like not giving the criminal justice system like a little kiss on the forehead right. in, mm-hmm. in the way that the court wants them to before commencing. So I'm sort of surprised that that's still technically good law. Yep. That brings us to Furman B. Georgia. <laughs> yeah. So 1972, we get a case called Furman v. Georgia. The case comes about because William Henry Furman is convicted of murder after a homeowner catches him during a home burglary and Furman shoots and kills the man. There is some question about how intentional the shooting was. He sort of initially said that he turned and fired blindly. Later, he said it was a completely accidental firing. Legally, it doesn't really matter that much because either way, he killed the man during the commission of a felony, which is felony murder, and that is eligible for the death penalty. There are a couple of cases consolidated together with Furman where men were sentenced to death for rape. And the underlying petition is based on a direct challenge to the constitutionality of the death penalty in all three cases. The outcome is very chaotic. It is five to four with each of the five justices in the majority writing their own opinion and not one of them joining any of the other four opinions. Mess. Mm. Mess. Absolutely wild stuff. But together, they halt the implementation of the death penalty nationwide. So, again, five separate opinions. So there are five separate rationales for the ruling. But the most notable common thread is the idea that the death penalty in the United States is cruel and unusual in violation of the Eighth Amendment because it is applied so arbitrarily. Right. Justice Potter Stewart famously wrote, quote, these death sentences are cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning is cruel and unusual. For of all the people convicted of rapes and murders in 1967 and 1968, many just as reprehensible as these... The petitioners are among a capriciously selected random handful upon whom the sentence of death has, in fact, been imposed. So in other words, there are an array of people convicted of similar offenses, and there's no particular rhyme or reason to who gets the death penalty, right? It's arbitrary. And they're saying that is itself a constitutional violation. There needs to be more coherence to these punishments. The other common thread among these opinions is that maybe it's not entirely arbitrary. Perhaps there is an identifiable trend in our issuance of death penalties, and it's your race, right? right? That you can measure and see that Black people are being sentenced to death more than white people for the same crimes. Now, Thurgood Marshall's concurrence here goes even farther 
essentially providing a holistic case for why he thinks the death penalty should be unconstitutional, not merely that it's arbitrary, right, but that it is excessively cruel in itself. Right. He says, I believe that the following facts would serve to convince even the most hesitant of citizens to condemn death as a sanction. Capital punishment is imposed discriminatorily against certain identifiable classes of people. There is evidence that innocent people have been executed before their innocence can be proved. And the death penalty wreaks havoc with our entire criminal justice system. He goes on to say it is the poor and the members of minority groups who are least able to voice their complaints against capital punishment. Their impotence leaves them victims of a sanction that the wealthier, better represented, just as guilty person can escape. So he is making this case that it's unfair across all of these different metrics and demographics. He talks about society's sort of shifting norms and the sort of move away from acceptance of the death penalty in broader society and and is also making this case that like if you present to the public the facts of the death penalty it is pretty clear in his mind that they would be opposed to it. I think that's right. And I think it's also really important, his perspective here, as somebody who represented people in criminal cases mm-hmm. who were facing the death penalty, right? Multiple times in his career. Right. Yeah. You know, he wraps it with a sort of like ode to the value of life. He says, in striking down capital punishment, this court does not malign our system of government. On the contrary, it pays homage to it. Only in a free society could right triumph in difficult times and could civilization record its magnificent advancement. In recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. So he's not just saying it's unfair, it's arbitrarily applied. He's basically saying, in order for us to consider ourselves an enlightened country, state-sanctioned murder can't be part of the plan. Right. We're either better than Mm -hmm. that or... We're not. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so um, there are four justices in dissent. They also all wrote individual dissents. There's nine (laughs) written opinions in this case. We are in hell. These guys were fucking on one, man. (laughs) So just doing them in the order they appear, (laughs) starting with Chief Justice Berger. He says, you know, look, the Eighth Amendment. Like, who are we kidding? We know it doesn't bar the death penalty. At least it didn't at the founding because, you know, like Rhiannon said, the death penalty is explicitly contemplated in other parts of the Constitution and multiple places. He says, at the time, evidence of like the intent behind the cruel and unusual prohibition was basically torture. You weren't allowed to like unnecessarily torture someone. He does, though, however, recognize that like cruelty is always going to be defined by like society as it exists, not by some old society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And does this analysis of why he thinks that modern society simply doesn't find the death penalty cruel. And so he's sort of passing the buck to the American people here and says, well, like if I were a legislator or an emperor or whatever, like I would either say no death penalty or only in the most rare of cases but that's not you know for me to decide sort of thing instead he puts everything on the legislature and says the legislatures are the people's representatives that's where popular will about what is and isn't cruel should manifest 
and 40 states have the death penalty. So clearly the people want to put criminals to death. Right. And who are we to stop them? This is a pretty common argument on the Very right much in so. this era. And I think mm-hmm. going forward, it, it feels a lot like a template that a lot of people follow in the coming years. Although I think it's worth noting that he's sort of conceding that if modern society were to agree that the death penalty is cruel, then it would be unconstitutional. And that is a concession that the next generation of conservatives retracts. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Like Scalia very famously hates this whole idea of evolving standards of decency. And he's like, no, no, no. Whatever played in 1789 plays now. Right. And the death penalty played in 1789. Evolving standards of decency do not matter. Right. So taking away the potential right. for reform. In yeah, the at least in terms of constitutional interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. They, this is the constitutional right. argument. Whereas they'll say, conservatives still today will say, we leave this up to the states. Mm-hmm. States have voted through their elected representatives to have death penalty statutes on the books, and that's okay, but the Constitution doesn't have anything to say about it. There's no evolving standard of decency there. Right. right. If you are in a state without the death penalty, the Supreme Court is okay with that. Mm-hmm. Right. All the state can do is have a cop kill you. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Which is a okay. <laughs> or if you're black and engaged in protest, some random person can kill you and they just won't prosecute. Yeah, maybe not even protest, yeah. right? Maybe you're just angry on the subway. <sighs> okay. ancillary points but (laughs) so blackman also writes a dissent also interesting previewing his evolution on the death penalty because he Mm -hmm. rails against it he's like disgusted by it he thinks it's awful he is clearly like a my personal preferences no death penalty ever finds it aboard and is on board with the evolving standards of decency approach But his general point, I think, if you unpack it, is basically like, yeah, but Americans aren't very decent. Like, the people are an immoral and gross people, and they're not enlightened. (laughs) Like, my colleagues in the majority here, or the plurality, they don't agree with you, Thurgood Marshall. And you're out ahead of them. Mm -hmm. And this is all happening very fast. Like, we've sort of weighed in on this in an ancillary way in the last few years, like in Witherspoon. We haven't really questioned the death penalty. There's not a big movement in the States to do this. And then all of a sudden, we're just saying it's done. And that's like too much too fast, I think. Mm -hmm. And we're like ahead of the people. Powell, Justice Powell, writes a dissent. He basically relies on like, yeah, the Constitution says it's okay. So what are we we even talking about here, right? right? He quotes the due process clause. He quotes other amendments where they say, you know, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. He's just like, this isn't a tough question. Rehnquist writes a short one and, you know, I am just not interested in what a segregationist racist piece of shit has to say about the death penalty. Fuck that guy. It's not interesting. You're not missing (laughs) anything. It's pretty dull. Right. I'm sure whatever he wrote out and then deleted was uh, interesting, (laughs) but that's between him and God. Yeah. (laughs) 
So yeah, the Furman decision in 1972 halts death penalty sentences in the United States, puts a moratorium on the death penalty because of what Peter said, that application of the death penalty was shown to be arbitrary and capricious. It was unfair to a degree that made it cruel and unusual, that made it unconstitutional. So what happens in response? Well, the decision in Furman leads states to rewrite their death penalty laws to eliminate the problems of arbitrariness that the Furman decision pointed out. You know, they were like, "Okay, cool, cool, cool. We'll fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. Florida rewrote its death penalty statute just five months after the Furman decision. And then over the next year or two, 34 more states rewrote theirs. One problem the Furman decision pointed out was the problem of unguided jury discretion, right? That juries were not guided through the criminal law in their state with how to decide whether or not somebody should get the death penalty, right? So to address that problem, a number of states just removed all discretion from their statutes and made capital punishment mandatory for people convicted of capital crimes. Mm -hmm. Later on, a few years later, mandatory death penalty schemes were held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in a case called Woodson. But states had other things that they did in response to the Furman decision to, you know, try to, quote unquote, fix their death penalty laws so that they would not be unconstitutional anymore. Most states created bifurcated proceedings for death penalty trials. Again, that means that almost like there's two separate trials. One decides whether somebody is guilty or not guilty. And then if they are found guilty, there's a separate sentencing hearing. There's a, a separate almost like sentencing trial for deciding what punishment they get. Mm -hmm. Other states set out standards for guiding the discretion of judges and juries when deciding whether or not to sentence somebody to death, they gave sentencing guidelines to determine sentencing, right? They would set out factors that needed to be weighed in deciding whether to impose a death sentence, you know, like considering if the crime committed was committed in a particularly cruel or vile way, right? Mm. And then their death penalty statutes were rewritten so that juries were also instructed to consider potential mitigating factors, right? So, over the next few years after Furman, states kind of go on a spree of rewriting their laws to address the arbitrariness that the Supreme Court was calling out. In addition, just in terms of like trends in changing state criminal laws, only seven states had LWAP, life without parole, before the Furman decision. But after Furman, it started to be adopted pretty rapidly as states were still searching for the harshest possible punishment, right, in lieu of being able to use the death penalty. And in fact, now every single state except for Alaska has some provision for life without parole on the books. Life without parole in the years after Furman, while things like the death penalty, the constitutionality of the death penalty were being litigated at the Supreme Court, life without parole sort of permeated spread all across the United States, even to states that never had had the death penalty or had abolished it long before Furman, right? So as society shifts and as philosophies of punishment, the purposes of imprisonment shift starting in the 1970s through the 80s and 90s to really punishment and incapacitation, you're not just seeing states 
you know, scrambling to rewrite their death penalty statutes so that they can execute people, you're also seeing new cruel and unusual punishments being added to criminal statutes. Well, let's not characterize them. (laughs) (laughs) That's up to the Supreme Court. We want to be unbiased here. That's right. So as states changed their statutes, they started to use the death penalty again. And death penalty cases started to be challenged again by the LDF and other organizations. And those cases made their way back to the Supreme Court. And so in 1976, we have the Supreme Court doing a little switcheroo. Mm -hmm. That's right. In a case called Greg v. Georgia. So this is a case about two murders. Greg and a companion were hitchhiking in Florida. Uh, They get picked up by two guys headed north. Their car breaks down, but the guy has cash on him. And so he just buys another car, one of of the victims. And they keep going with these two hitchhikers. Wild time, uh, the the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Like, my car broke down. I'll just buy another car and take these two strangers that I met a few hours ago Mm -hmm. with me. That's what you could do when the cost of living was affordable. Am I right, folks? (laughs) (laughs) Greg ends up somewhere in Georgia killing the two guys that picked them up, stealing their car, their stuff. Another hitchhiker they'd picked up along the way but had luckily gotten off saw in the news and and so you know these guys got arrested greg's companion flipped on him and he ended up confessing so he is convicted under georgia's newly written laws and sentenced to death this is like rian had mentioned a bifurcated trial where guilt was assessed at one stage and then whether or not he would get the death penalty was assessed at a separate stage it required unanimity from the jury it required a finding of fact beyond a reasonable doubt that he had gauged in one of 10 aggravating factors. The new law also required that at this hearing, he have a chance to put forward mitigating circumstances and evidence. And then finally, that the trial judge would fill out this questionnaire that would go directly to the state Supreme Court on an expedited basis uh, for the court to review to ensure that the jury was not influenced by prejudice and bias. Sounds great. Sounds very good Mm -hmm. in theory. Mm -hmm. And as we know, there's never any difference between theory and practice. No. So nothing to worry about. They shouldn't even be two different concepts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the opinion here, again, another fractured court, there is a plurality, Justice Stewart, who had struck down the death penalty in the previous case we discussed, Justice Powell, who had been in dissent in the previous case we discussed, and Justice Stevens, who was even on the court in the previous case we discussed? No. No. Are in the plurality, and it's basically a rehash of Furman saying, like, look, they did it. They made the death penalty less arbitrary. We said it was arbitrary and capricious, and this isn't. And they really sort of harp on the discretion the jury has being sort of confined by having to say whether or not there are these aggravating factors and they say look we might not think the death penalty has a deterrent effect but that's not really our place to question the legislative judgment of the georgia state legislature on that point and they make a note that like california 
the California State Supreme Court had ruled the death penalty unconstitutional under their state constitution, and the people of California had passed an amendment overturning that decision, basically sort of saying, look, we maybe we got ahead of ourselves. Maybe the people really are bloodthirsty freaks. Mm-hmm. You know, the opinion, I think, if you don't know anything about this country's history, <laughs> is reasonable <laughs> like you read it and right, you're like right. yeah this all makes sense i don't really believe in the death penalty period but like in terms of like everything they say the way they describe the law you're like this yeah it seems like the jury's discretion is confined and there's review by the state supreme court blah 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 all this stuff right they've made it fair right or whatever mm-hmm. theoretically but yeah. really all we've done is like increase the appearance of fairness by adding procedure right it's not clear like if you know anything about like georgia in the 70s that you could expect this process these jurors in the state supreme court to be any fairer than they were a few years prior right exactly there's a concurrence written by white joined by Berger and rehnquist they sort of focus on the other part of this the review by the state supreme court saying look everybody was concerned that juries can be very willy-nilly in Furman v georgia the last case well now they can't be now the state supreme court gets a chance on an expedited basis to put them in their place and and actually in this case did remand some of the death penalty findings because there was mm-hmm. like you know, murder and robbery and state Supreme court basically said like sensing them to death for the robbery is very unusual. And they struck that down and remanded for new sentencing, but upheld the death penalty conviction for the murder. So, you know, who cares? Right. Right. Blackman also concurs in judgment only doesn't join any opinion and doesn't really write anything kind of weirdly. He, he has like one sentence, that literally is just a citation to his opinion in Furman. Just like, remember, I already wrote about the death penalty. I think it sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the people are bloodthirsty freaks, like I said. You know? Yeah. And right. uh, yeah. that's pretty much it. Then there are two dissents, one by Brennan and one by Thurgood Marshall. For the most part, they just restate the reasons that they made, you know, in their opinions in Furman. There's a degree here to which it sort of feels like they feel like maybe they kind of had their bluff called, right? They were like, well, the real problem is it's too arbitrary. And then Georgia puts in all these procedures and they're like, see, it's not arbitrary anymore, right? right? And you're confronted with a problem, which is it's true, arguably, that they made it less arbitrary. But if you are analyzing it correctly, it's still relatively arbitrary. I mean, it's that's quite obvious to everyone, but so is like the entire legal system, right. Right. right? And so you're sort of at a crossroads where you can challenge the entire basis of our criminal justice system, or you can be like, okay, this is enough, right? Mm-hmm. So Marshall basically says, look, I already talked about this, but I do want to make one point, which is, yes, it might look like all of the citizens in these states support the death penalty, But the average American actually has no idea how this functions in practice, meaning they don't know the likelihood of killing an innocent man, for example. And so even if you tried to look at popular sentiment to gauge the constitutionality, it wouldn't tell you the whole story. Right. 
I think there are two ways to look at this. One is just, it's just like elitist, Mm -hmm. right? He's sort of being like, the common American is a dumbass, so I'm not going to give them too much credit here. The corollary to Blackman's, the common American is a dumbass, and that moral judgment. And we must abide. (laughs) abide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But there is something to this that I want to point out, right? there, And it's sort of common sense when you think about our governmental system. If this was just a matter of popular opinion, we wouldn't need the Eighth Amendment at all, mm-hmm. right? right? If it was just, what does the public think? Then you wouldn't need a court to weigh in, right? right? It could just be left to the voters. That is not how the constitutional system has ever functioned. So surely the court plays some role here. And I think Marshall is making the case that like, we can use our judgment as people who know a lot about this, who have been briefed on the functioning of the system about whether it's cruel, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Whether it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Conservatives built their death penalty jurisprudence for like the 40 years that follow as like a response to Marshall almost implicitly, mm-hmm. essentially saying this is not something that judges can do. But I, I think that he's sort of highlighting an interesting point, right? If all we're doing is figuring out what the public wants, then what the fuck is the Eighth Amendment doing, right? Exactly. Yeah, the evolving standards of decency has to be more than like a Gallup poll, right? Right, right. So with the Gregg decision in 1976, you have the death penalty getting the stamp of approval. The moratorium is lifted on the death penalty in the United States. But I do want to talk about something that started in Gregg and then continued for many years in that approach from Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan. They both dissented in Gregg. And then in almost every single death penalty case after Greg at the Supreme Court, Justices Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan would write their own opinions, often dissents and concurrences, where they expressed the view that the death penalty was unconstitutional. They did it in every death penalty case at the Supreme Court after that. This includes writing a dissent in almost every death penalty case where cert was denied, where the court wouldn't hear the case at all, Mm -hmm. they would write a dissenting opinion in those cases as well. And to be clear, this is not both of them writing opinions in all of these cases. This is one or the other, and then the other would join in the opinion. But they were writing opinions in all of these cases for the rest of their careers on the court until they retired. And when they would write dissents to cases that allowed the death penalty, they would explain their categorical opinion that the death penalty was per se, unconstitutional. But they would always also include an explanation of why the state shouldn't be able to execute like that particular person in the case, even if the death penalty was constitutional in the abstract or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Tyson v. Arizona is an example of this. We did an episode about Tyson v. Arizona pretty early on. This case allowed for capital punishment for a defendant who was not convicted of killing anyone themselves, but who had participated in a felony during which someone was murdered. This is felony murder. This allows capital punishment for felony murder. In that case, Brennan writes a dissent saying that even if the death penalty were constitutional, right, applying it to people who are less culpable, who have not murdered somebody, Mm -hmm. right, shows exactly that unconstitutional unfairness that they have been pointing out that has not been 
remedied by a state rewriting its death penalty law, right? right. No. If they execute a couple of presidents <laughs> for murder, then I will maybe concede that they're starting to be fair about <laughs> right. it. Right. Yeah, exactly. If drone strikes, yeah. extrajudicial drone strike killings <laughs> are a capital crime for which a president is executed, then maybe I think this is not so arbitrary. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just had this visual of like... Mr. Obama, do you have any final words? <laughs> he just kicks off like a beautiful speech. <laughs> yeah. And then Trump got Anwar Al-Awlaki's kid. So I feel like, imagine both of them. Imagine both the Trump and Obama final speeches. <laughs> like one after another. <laughs> both, so like on the gallows. He's doing his final words and like complaining about like someone he disliked from the 90s. <laughs> Imagine the difference in the last meals. Uh, One's McDonald's. Right. <laughs> a filet of fish. Yeah. A Big Mac. Mm-hmm. A Three Diet Cokes. Yeah. A chocolate shake. Obama, just like a turkey sandwich with Dijon right. or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sprouts and arugula. Another interesting sort of individual justice case study over the course of the development of the jurisprudence over the last 50 years on the death penalty is Justice Harry Blackman. Blackman, remember, is in the dissent in Furman saying, yeah, I don't personally like the death penalty, but I don't think it's unconstitutional. He's in the majority in Greg, lifting the moratorium on the death penalty, allowing the death penalty, right? But in 1991, comes out against the death penalty, saying it can never be constitutional. That's in a case called Callens v. Collins. We've talked about this dissent by Black men at least two or three times on the podcast. Incredibly poignant, incredibly articulate, emotional, passionate sort of disavowing of the death penalty. He says, quote, the death penalty remains fraught with arbitrariness, discrimination, caprice, and mistake. From this day forward, I no longer shall tinker with the machinery of death. I feel morally and intellectually obliged simply to concede that the death penalty experiment has failed. So in those three justices, I think interesting sort of intellectual jurisprudential principles coming out over the course of decades in this one area of the law. Mm -hmm. Something to be said maybe for black men ruling on these cases and wrestling with these issues for so long and finally coming out and saying, like, this does not work. It cannot be fair. Mm -hmm. But also, Blackman, we could have used you. Yeah. We could have used you a couple decades before this. Yeah. I think you're right. Greg v. Georgia as a 6-3 opinion instead of a 7-2 with Blackman, instead of dashing off a single citation, maybe if he's writing powerfully, right, Mm -hmm. about this, Maybe he's able to persuade someone or at the very least, like, change the arc of the next few years. It's hard to say. The flip side of that, though, is I do think there's something powerful about someone who was always said the death penalty was abhorrent, but nonetheless said he thought the Constitution allowed it and has a voting history backing that up coming to this conclusion and then writing so powerfully about it. I do feel like there's a lot of force to that, like a sort of a... You know, the zeal of the convert, it can always be very intoxicating and persuasive. And I think that comes through in this opinion. Yeah. And I do think it started to, you know, in the early 90s, make people think like, yeah, maybe we are better than this. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very well-known opinion, I think, because it, it was very persuasive and had a lot of impact. Right. Right. right, and calls out something specific that the Supreme Court is doing, right? Right. The phrase about tinkering with the machinery of death, right? right. You're just messing with this thing that, like, at bottom, you're murdering people. The state right. is murdering people, and we're putting all these, like, you know, gadgets and gizmos on this, acting like that makes it better than what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the jurisprudence that developed over the decades since Greg, one case I really want to talk about is McCleskey. McCleskey v. Kemp is a 1987 case where the court said that the racially disproportionate impact of the Georgia death penalty was not enough to mitigate a death penalty sentence if there was no showing of racially discriminatory purpose, right? So this was a different kind of challenge to the death penalty. Mm -hmm. This death penalty challenge was brought under the 14th Amendment, right? Saying that this was an equal protection due process violation, that Georgia was essentially carrying out the death penalty in a racist way. In the McCleskey case, there is a sociologist, a professor named Baldus, who studied 2,500 murder cases in Georgia and concluded that application of the death penalty there included the consideration of race, right? Juries were considering race in deciding whether to sentence somebody to death. And in particular, they were considering the race of the victim. People who were convicted of Mm -hmm. murdering Mm -hmm. white people in Georgia were much more likely to get the death penalty. And so in McCleskey, the majority, it's a majority opinion written by Powell, they're saying, yeah, there's racially discriminatory impact here. But we don't know that lawmakers in Georgia or juries in Georgia are actually operating with racially discriminatory intent. Mm -hmm. They might not necessarily mean it in a racist way. Maybe this is one of the greatest statistical anomalies of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Who are we to say? And, you know, Powell even says he tries to kind of like whitewash this. He he says, you know, if race plays a role in administration of the death penalty, that would call into, quote, serious question the principles that underlie our entire criminal justice system. Mm. And it's yeah, like, buddy. yeah, fucker. Right. When he says that, it's like, so let's not even talk about it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And Brennan, again, in one of these dissents, right, either Brennan or Marshall in a case upholding the death penalty while they're on the court is dissenting. Brennan in his dissent says the majority is acting with a, quote, fear of too much justice. Right. That like if the Supreme Court corrected something and that showed that there were similar problems in other aspects of the law. We're acting like we're afraid of there being too much justice, of there being correction, of there being fairness across the board in the system. Right. Mm -hmm. This is part of a trend where conservatives and, you know, we've been talking a lot about this recently because we've had a couple of cases about like racist intent. Yeah. This is a part of a trend where conservatives will look at like the obviously discriminatory impact and be like, oof. I don't know. You have to go case by case and prove it. Right. And then someone's like, well, what about the intent? And they're like, oh, no, you can't look at that. Mm-hmm. Like, that. Yeah. And, you know, sort of everywhere you turn, they have some reason for ignoring the obvious reality. Uh, and I was just, you know, texting you guys about this. But you see the contrast when we're talking about something like 
COVID regulations that disproportionately impacted churches, arguably, oh, yeah. right? And Neil Gorsuch just outraged, right? Outraged at the fact that some of these regulations might be limiting church services while not impacting casinos, for example. All of a sudden, disparate impact is a very important analysis that we must be doing. Not to sort of belabor the obvious about conservatism, but there are people they care about and there are people they don't. Exactly. McCleskey is very much an allowance of racism in the law, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think it's worth just noting Powell's in the majority here, and this is Georgia. This is the same state Mm -hmm. where he had been in the plurality in Greg v. Georgia saying, they did it. They fixed it. It's not arbitrary anymore. And then here he is later being like, okay, so maybe it's arbitrary, but we don't know why it's arbitrary. Right. Yeah. It might not be racistly arbitrary. It might just turn out that way. So, oh, well. And yeah. it's just like, are you fucking kidding me, man? <laughs> like, yeah. Just right. absolutely right. throwing up their hands, throwing up their hands on clear racism in the application of the law. And it's in an area of the law where people die as a result. Right. right? And you have the Supreme Court being like, eh, there's really nothing we can do. Right. Just as a side note, want to say that Justice Powell, after retiring, said if he could change his decision, his vote in any one opinion in any one case over the course of his career. He said it would be McCleskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, fuck you very much, Justice Powell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think McCleskey just kind of stands for these propositions in terms of allowing racism in the law, in the death penalty, but also as a 14th Amendment case, right? Put the kibosh on constitutional challenges outside the Eighth Amendment, outside the Sixth Amendment context, arguments about your defense attorney, those kinds of things. The Supreme Court is saying in McCleskey, there is not a 14th Amendment claim about this either. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2005, there was this case, Roper, where the court held 5-4, that it was unconstitutional to sentence a minor to death. And this overturned statutes in 25 states. So it was a pretty big deal. Again, another data point in this, like, oh, maybe we are slowly, decades too late, finally grappling with how arbitrary and capricious this is and are going to rule it unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Maybe Anthony Kennedy is with the liberals on this. Fast forward a decade, Kennedy retires under Trump. He's replaced by Kavanaugh. Trump essentially lifts what had been an informal ban on the death penalty at the federal level. The federal government hadn't executed anybody in in years, and they started rushing to execute people left and right towards the end of his term. And that dream is dead. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a couple of times about this sort of era of what appeared to be capital punishment reform and maybe even reform of life without parole Mm -hmm. at the sort of turn of the last decade in like 2010 Mm -hmm. there was hype in reform circles that like this was on the table that we might even have five votes for abolishing the death penalty now it's very clear that we don't have four votes goes to show how much like the gnashing of teeth and dragging of feet in the decades preceding it actually mattered yeah yeah Also worth mentioning, if we're talking about modern stuff, that when she was a Catholic law professor, Amy Coney Barrett was writing that a Catholic judge should be 
abstaining, you know, recusing from death penalty cases or those determinations doesn't comport with their their religion. As a Republican justice, she is signing death warrants, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was all before she got a, a taste of human blood. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. No, they taste human blood at the communion, right? <laughs> no, I'm talking about the, the murder parties that elites hold where she rubs it on her gums like cocaine. <laughs> Another Catholic in an enormous position of power, hmm. Joe Biden, who is uh, morally opposed to the death penalty and promised to basically reinstate that federal moratorium uh, that existed prior to Trump. His Department of Justice has done the weirdest, most weaselly thing you can imagine, which is they aren't seeking the death penalty, but in cases that were ongoing prior to Merrick Garland taking over as attorney general, in which Trump's Department of Justice was seeking the death penalty, they have decided to continue seeking the death penalty, Mm -hmm. which is fucking insane. Yeah. Well, no, it just means that they believe that continuity across justice departments is more important than human life. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's right. Can't be too much justice. Well, yeah, it can't be too much justice. That's crazy. Having principles and standing on them, that's asking for a lot. Yeah. I will say being exposed to Merrick Garland as attorney general has like put a slight silver lining on Neil Gorsuch having his seat <laughs> where it's like, like whenever I read a Gorsuch opinion, it's torture, but I'm like, at least Merrick Garland is upset somewhere mm-hmm. because fuck that guy. He's the worst. <laughs> Seriously. So stepping back and looking at the halt of the death penalty in the seventies, there's probably something poignant to say about this, like, brief flicker of progress that was snuffed out as soon as conservatives could manage. And the fact that one of the first prominent acts of cruelty of the modern conservative legal movement was literally to define cruelty as narrowly as possible. Yeah. I also think it's emblematic of a surrender by certain elements of the liberal legal academy of the principles that brought us the Warren court era right? Thurgood Marshall's opinions in these cases have a sort of moral force to them. And they're implicitly honest about the role that judges play in our system. He knows that you can't analyze the Eighth Amendment without making practical and moral judgments about what is cruel and what is not. And he doesn't pretend to be doing anything else. And I I think there's a clarity of purpose there. On the other hand, Justice Stevens joins the majority in Greg because he was convinced that the precedent indicated that the death penalty was constitutional in this context. Later in his life, he said he regretted the decision, which I guess is better than not regretting it, but still so much worse than doing the right thing in the first place that I'm not sure it matters, right? And the reason that this sort of matters in a big picture sense is that Stephen's bought into the conservatives framing that this was a doctrinal dispute rather than a moral and political one. And it's that disconnect that haunted the liberal bench for what has now been two generations. And there's a moment here where the conservatives are starting to articulate their theory of the law 
at the level of the Supreme Court where the liberals could have responded in kind, but instead they retreated into a defensive posture and they've stayed there for 50 years. I think that's exactly right. I think that there is a tone to the liberal academic argument against the death penalty right now that is frankly too caught up in sort of technicalities, a little bit of sort of overly practical, right? Arguments about, for instance, the cost of the death penalty, right? What mm-hmm. costs more to society? Is it a long appellate process? Right. Did you know that the appeals for uh, the death penalty are more expensive than life right. in prison? Whoa. <laughs> uh, bad news. Conservatives don't even want them to have appeal rights. So mm-hmm. like <laughs> yeah. that argument is not doing what you think it is. Exactly. Rather than this sort of full-throated, yes, morally superior, morally comprehensive argument about dignity, autonomy, equality, justice, right? I think Supreme Court jurisprudence is a really, really good example in the U.S. of our reliance on the Supreme Court since the civil rights era to do social justice and the ways that it disappoints in almost every aspect over and over and over again, right? It's sort of proof that, like, the Supreme Court being the last arbiter of justice, justice and and liberty for the individual person in the law, it's, it's a false promise, right? And then back to the idea of, of sort of developing our moral philosophy, on the death penalty. I think when you're talking about modern American hierarchy, American capitalism, American politics, you have to start first with a country founded on slavery and stealing land from indigenous peoples. And then you're talking about a country even after the abolition of slavery that is grasping desperately at the reification of the same hierarchy, holding on and reimagining and expanding by any means the power of the white male property owner, right? And that's predicated in large part on social and population control of everybody else, in particular people who are formerly enslaved, people who aren't white male property owners. And so it goes without saying that the death penalty is a tool of social control. We know that. But the American iteration throughout history shows also, I think, that it's a tool of social control targeted first at enslaved people, then formerly enslaved people, and then their descendants. It's about punishing, controlling, brutalizing people of a specific socioeconomic class. And what's it say in terms of power and legal agency that, like, by virtue of being a white property owner, for a large part of history in this country, you were legally placed in the role of judge and executioner over another human being before the Civil War, right? How does that look after the Civil War? What about since the Civil Rights Movement? Did we fix it, right? So that brings me to this idea in abolition, which is not that the incidence of cruelty in our punishment system shows that the system is, quote unquote, not working or that the system is, quote unquote, broken. It's that the cruelty is exactly the point. Like, this is, in fact, the system working exactly how it's intended to work. This is the obvious, predictable, wholly intended output of the exact systemic inputs that were put in, right? I think the Supreme Court jurisprudence you have on the death penalty is extremely emblematic of this point because you have 50 years now of legal debate about what can make the death penalty fair and just. 
maybe the system is broken because a disproportionate number of black people are executed, but we can fix it if we just make sure that we interpret the Constitution the right way. If only the worst of the worst people get the death penalty, if the jury hears such and such kind of evidence to make the most informed decision possible, whatever. Right. But like you can't fucking fix it. You can't fix it. You can't fix the bad thing from being bad. The death penalty is a good example of where. Some people, I think, come to this exact realization like they get it because the stakes are literally life and death. So you can't fix it. Somebody fucking dies. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the state murdering people legally as a tool of social control. And so you have to abolish it. That's the only solution. But you look at the whole thing, the whole punishment system, just one or two more levels zoomed out from the death penalty. And you realize, like, it's the whole fucking thing. Right. LWAP, mm -hmm. life without parole, mass incarceration, policing, all of it. These are the social tools of disempowerment and purposeful brutalization. The Supreme Court is not going to fix it for us. They're not equipped to fix it. And in fact, it cannot be fixed. You have to abolish it. And I just wanted to add something. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the facts. <laughs> Next week, Sierra Club v. Morton. Case about who can sue on issues related to the environment. Minor spoiler, not a lot of people. But question... What about a flower? Yeah. <laughs> Our boy Douglas has a classic descent that we're, we're going to enjoy telling you about. It's a fun one. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Thank you for subscribing. You are God's chosen children. Angels. Gorgeous mm -hmm. angels. We love you. Beautiful people. Have a nice week. Bye-bye. Bye. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our researcher is Jonathan DeBruin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. 